0: Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty and the Catholic faith, hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I am delighted to announce the triumphant return of Phoebe Watson. Hello! Now Phoebe... (laughs) Uh, You were missing for the podcast for so long that I was genuinely worried our listeners would think that we had had a falling out. I know, I was
1: listening to it thinking, oh, they're going to think I'm just gone.
0: (laughs) I think I referenced you being around in the episodes enough that people hopefully didn't worry too much. Uh, There is no big reason why you haven't been on. Simply, I got some uh, opportunities to speak to some other people and some other topics felt quite timely that had... Friends of ours or, or people we knew that had specialities in those areas. so.
1: And I think also that it's been so chaotic that you've always been a little bit on the back foot this autumn trying to keep up with everything. Yeah, it's been
0: <laughs> I think a little bit of a chaotic six months for me. You might have noticed we were missing an episode last month again no big serious reason why things just got a little bit away from me. But we have got our two episodes planned for December, so they should be coming to you. And this obviously is the first of them. Um, and yeah, I think we, Phoebe and I were chatting about what we wanted to talk about with her coming back because we did think it had been a while. And we, for our first episode back, we thought maybe we'd take a slightly chattier, a slightly catch-uppy-er, friendly kind of topic. Mm-hmm. we said, what would we like to talk about? And the answer is always books.
1: <laughs> it's just got to be books.
0: <laughs> um. And But instead of focusing on a particular book, as we often do on the podcast, we thought maybe we would talk a little bit about our reading journey, how we have come to be interested in literature a little bit, just a kind of our personal perspective on our reading lists. And in particular, we're going to talk about classics for... I, I do assume that most of our listeners are actually better read than I am. So uh, hopefully this will be of interest to people who um, have read plenty more classics than I have. Also, if you hear the word classics and you get a little bit you know have your your haunches up on it, like me, uh, I panic. We are going to caveat exactly what we mean by classics, so bear with us. But uh, in terms of looking towards the the great names, the Dickenses, the Austins, all of those great books, those are the ones that I think both of us have been at least making concerted efforts in the last couple of years to try and read as much of as possible. And so just talk about why why we like them, why they kind of... I don't think they need championing I think people know that you should read these books but why it shouldn't be such a scary imp- imposing thing how you can share them with other people and how you can better approach them yourself because I think even those of us who read lots of classics I think there's something about the modern age that makes it difficult to sit down and read a long quite densely focused book for a, a concerted period of time so just general tips and tricks and things that we have found helpful.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think we're just going to chat a little bit about how we've challenged our reading and kind of broadened the scope into books that we always meant to read at some point. But also taking that in a way that means you're still enjoying what you're reading. This isn't about just trying to plough through a list of classics because you should read the classics.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm definitely a big advocate for reading classics because they are fun and good and interesting and like i said if you're listening to this podcast i presume you feel at least a bit <laughs> along this line given that that is often what we're talking about in in the case of like specific examples of classic novels that we, we've we done episodes on but yeah i
1: think the books we're going to be referencing we're going to mainly try and keep them to books we've talked about on the podcast because that way you don't ha- You should already know about them.
0: (laughs) Of course, we expect you to have listened to every single episode of Risking Enchantment. Or you can
1: just go back and listen to them.
0: (laughs) But yeah, so I think to give a little bit of a background, because the first thing I want to acknowledge, and it's something we've slightly mentioned already, which is that I don't actually think that it's helpful for people to feel like reading classic novels is this big burden that they are maybe they're failing at they haven't read any yet or maybe they tried and it was too hard and or they just didn't get on with it and uh, you know I know I've had a couple of friends say that they think of me as someone who's very well read I do not think of myself that way at all and to be honest I think I really wasn't. I mean, I, I think uh, after the past couple of years, I'm a little bit better read, but I hadn't read a lot of the classics. And when I went to university, I met a lot of people who had read a lot more books than me. And I s- s- got that feeling of like, oh my gosh, I've missed out. Or I, I've been I've been sort of failing in some way. So as a kid, I always loved reading, but um, my mom was very much of the opinion that kids should be kids. And so she wasn't overly didactic about exactly what I should be reading I think she would have checked it to see whether she was happy with the content but I read a lot of kids stuff I remember there was like a magic book called Mr. Magicas or Mr. Majenkas or something about a magic teacher I think I read a lot of that I read a lot of Ina Blyton, Roald Dahl and I would reread a lot I would just find a couple of books that I liked and reread them over and over again and when I became a teenager I actually read quite a bit of fantasy but again none of the fantasy that anybody knows because my dad would just go to the library and pick up the most obscure usually translated fiction fantasy novel and toss it my way when he came home and say I think you'd like this and uh, quite often I did (laughs) that was how I picked my books as a teenager um
1: yeah I think someday we should both sit down and go through a list of the fantasy books we read as teenagers yeah because For two girls who both read fantasy, I think we might not find much overlap.
0: (laughs) I know. I really didn't read any of the books that anybody's even heard of. So, um, yeah. And then I somehow, despite all of that inauspicious beginning, went on and did an English degree. And I, I did obviously read... A lot of kind of important seminal texts at that time, um, but I didn't read a lot around it. I I'm quite I've, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast. I'm a relatively slow reader, mainly because I'm a very conscientious reader. I don't like to skim. I like to know that I've absorbed every word on the page, and I don't feel, like to feel like I've skipped over anything. Um, which I think we'll come to a little bit later. I think is actually helpful for reading classics because you kind of need to give them that level of attention on some level. But yeah, I you know, it would take me a long time to read our, our set texts. And so I didn't really read anything else. And I think luckily I took quite broad classes. Uh, so I covered a lot of genres. But I, yeah, like I said, I s- still felt a little bit like I was reading these texts sort of in a vacuum. Like I didn't really get how they all connected or were part of this big tradition and I was getting there but it was definitely a slow start and then after that I ended up working when, once I finished university, I ended up working for a book website where my job was to recommend books and I suddenly had to read a lot of books very quickly. And The, the website's gone now, although you can see the articles on my website, rachelsherlock.com, if anyone wants to read them. Um, Some of
1: them are hilarious.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm very proud of a lot of them, but there was a big focus on modern translated fiction and that's something I still feel really strongly about. I love looking at what's coming out around the world. I think it gives a lot of different perspectives. But the other big thing that we did a lot of, me and my colleagues, was um, advocating for classics and breaking it down why they should be accessible and why they're not something elitist and why they should be fun to read. And uh, that job is now over, like I said, the website is gone. But that was a huge part of bringing me into doing Risking Enchantment and why I wanted to keep that up in some way. And. Definitely the podcast has been my main motivation for reading for the past couple of years. Almost like almost any time you see an episode about a particular book, I've inevitably only just read that book within the last, I don't know, two, three months before recording the podcast. So if you ever think, wow, she's been reading all of these books for so many times, just imagine me like just crossing the finish line. Okay, i read it in time to record the podcast.
1: <laughs> Unless you had to read it and then make me read it.
0: Yeah. And Which then, has happened. It has happened occasionally. But yeah, so it's like I was saying, it's kind of only been in the last couple of years that I really feel like I've sat down with like a concerted effort to say, oh, there are important works of fiction. And actually, that's another thing I want to point out as we're going on. We could also be talking about nonfiction, memoir, travel writing, nature writing, poetry, even. We probably won't touch on any of those. But for this, we're kind of talking about fiction. And that's really where our interests are are mainly based. But yeah, that like the last couple of years has been really an interesting experience for me really diving into classics at this age.
1: Yeah. Whereas I think I'm coming from more of like a layman's perspective in that I don't have an English degree. Mm -hmm. And I probably don't even have an awareness of some of the texts that you're talking about as seminal or like key ones and how they fit together. Like that's above my head. (laughs) I don't know where you're going there. But I just read a lot as a child, teenager in college and widely in some ways. In some ways a lot of fantasy a lot of just whatever was in the library and following trains of books that i liked mm-hmm. and then being willing to go oh well i liked that book on china so i'll try this book on china or something along those lines to like follow that train down yeah and also i would have read austin um i think by the time No it was just after I met you that I got really into Jane Austen Mm. (laughs) but she would have been quite a big part of like my knowledge of classics and in terms of being able to see them as accessible books. On the other hand there's also been books that I've tried to read and failed. Classic examples of that would be Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, (laughs) Wuthering Heights (laughs) Um, or my first attempt at Dracula, all of which I got maybe a quarter of the way into, and just went like, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stopping, I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to talk a little bit about that later and maybe how you can make a more, make a better choice. In what you're reading and know what you're getting in for Mm -hmm. because for me that was a large part of the problem like if I went to Dickens expecting anything like Austen you know in a bit of trouble
0: yeah exactly that you know in some ways it, it is a little bit strange that there's a classics bookshelf in that These are all books from a wide range of genres with a load of different writing styles and a whole bunch of different perspectives. And they all get put on one shelf because someone has sort of dubiously titled them classics.
1: Usually what it just means is that they are now um, out of copyright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's usually all it means. They're out of copyright and are relatively popular.
0: (laughs) That's pretty much it. And I think that's maybe something to to start us talking about the classics and what does it, what does the word classics even mean? And like I said, I think we've touched on this a little bit already, so I don't think we need to totally dive into it yet. But just again, to reiterate that our interest in the classics is so far from being about snobbery or elitism, like the idea that you would read it, read books simply for the sort of ego of saying that you had read them, um, I mean, might be a little bit tempting for someone like me, but... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) But is a very, very bad motivation and also does not actually lend yourself to being motivated to read because unless you're actually enjoying the books, it's kind of a pointless task, surely.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think C.S. Lewis has some great quotes on how important it is to also enjoy what you're reading. Um, The one from Screwtape comes to mind of trying to deter someone from the book he really likes to the best book
0: the most important the book. most important book yeah
1: exactly yeah um, and while I think there is still an element of that these books are important and they say something and you can but you can also enjoy them like you're not going to understand what it's saying unless you're also enjoying it
0: yeah and I think we're... I feel like we're ricocheting around a bunch of different topics, but we'll come to a little bit later about what it means to enjoy something that isn't very instantly entertaining or doesn't have sort of, like, that modern sense of, like, having action after act, action after action, that, like, it may be something that you enjoy, but in a very different way to the way that you might enjoy watching a movie or or reading some more kind of contemporary fiction that is very fast-paced. and And that, like, also... I, the other thing I really hate when I come across is when people sort of talk about, you mean you haven't read that? And that feels so ridiculous in that your whole life is an opportunity to read books and maybe you'll get to some and maybe you won't get to others. But, you know, it, it's... Like, I I really believe in reading them at the right time for you. And that it's never a bad time to read a classic. And maybe that, that you know, maybe you didn't read it as a teenager. But that there's no reason not to read it when you're 30 or 60 or 80. That, like, all of these times are good times to read books.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, both of us read The Wind in the Willows last year. Yeah. we loved been, it.
0: We've been working our way through um, a lot of classic children's fiction which i'm sure if i had had the right frame of mind to read it as a kid i'm sure i would have adored but i adore it now so it's all fine <laughs> exactly
1: um, and yeah i think we also want to say that while we definitely count children's literature in the realm of classics in general it's what we're specifically talking about here is going to be the ones that are a little bit harder and take that little bit more of a leap to get into
0: yeah Yeah, and I think maybe that's a good starting point to talk about, like, what are the classics or at the very least, what are... We talking about when we say classics, because I definitely think I come down on the side of being very loose with that term. I don't have a very strict. I mean, for some people, it only means Latin
1: and Greek. And then I was re- <laughs> we don't read Latin and Greek. You read the Iliad.
0: I read the Iliad and another play by Euripides, Iphigenia at Aulis, for my, from my English degree. Um, but
1: I'll correct it. I don't read Latin <laughs> and Greek.
0: <laughs> well, I certainly didn't read it in the original. <laughs> or like I was reading an article recently where someone was saying that I read classics but I do also like 20th century authors. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, the distance between Chesterton and Austen is the same as Chesterton and us. So at what point do we start adding to it? When do they become modern classics? When do modern classics start just being classics? Like, I I guess I'm on the relatively, like, I don't don't have a very strict sense of like, what is a classic. I do think there are core texts, to, to the classics that I think most people would recognize, whether it's a Tolstoy or like we said, a Dickens or maybe the Brontes that feel like they have permeated culture in such a wide way that they are fi- fixtures and in that way, classics, but C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about reading old books and I almost kind of prefer that kind of caption of just just calling them old books and having done with it and not not being too pedantic about what constitutes a classic.
1: Definitely. I think the other way to think about it is it's usually the books sitting on your bookshelf that are really pretty but you haven't read. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a good description? Yeah,
0: yeah, it's not bad, you know. (laughs) Yeah, And I mean, you know, I think the general description of it is as being like kind of exemplary or noteworthy or featured on a great list of books and then like it's also very tied up with this idea of the western canon of this like list of foundational western texts but it doesn't need to be there can be classics from all over the world and i would certainly be in favor of looking back over history and trying to find some of the lost classics from some more underrepresented people or maybe it's women or maybe it's people of colour or maybe it's just people who didn't have the advantage of a publisher that stayed in print for (laughs) that stayed in operation for all of this time that like all of these things can mean that you lose out on great works of fiction and I do think that those those ones that we mentioned that have lasted and that have permeated and that everyone it, like that, every generation has seen quite a few people from that generation read it. Are classics in a different way, in that they have influenced the thinking and the understanding of culture for so many people. But like I said, um, <laughs> I think there's, I think there's plenty of room in whatever the word classics means.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good place to just take a side note and say that, um, for maybe not the next podcast, but probably the one after that, or maybe in a different format, we're going to try and respond to some of your comments. And particularly, I think, this is quite a chatty podcast, Mm -hmm. um, this particular episode, if you have any suggestions of modern classics that we should read, ones that come from translated fiction that aren't necessarily counted among the canon, if you want to chime in on anything we say that you disagree with or that you agree with and that you like and want to expand on I think we'll kind of go over those and try and come back in some format and with that it's an idea that comes from a podcast that I love called Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where they'll take the comments from a previous episode and expand on it so I think we're going to try and do something similar
0: yeah just i guess opening it up to see especially like you said this feels like one where people where i'm sure like we said our listeners may be much better read than us and i expect that they are so i'm sure we could do with their their input exactly i do have i want to read out here there is a book by um italo calvino from the 1980s uh where which is called why read the classics which is a very fortunate title the opening chapter or maybe it's the introduction is just this essay why read the classics and then the following chapters are kind of a look at different texts throughout history but he he has some really kind of helpful steps and points that kind of point us towards what a classic is and i found them really useful there are 14 i'll see how many of the them i get through here because it's quite a lot but he says to read a great book for the first time in one's maturity is an extraordinary pleasure different from though one cannot say greater or lesser than the pleasure of having read it in one's youth. And I think that's something that we've kind of mentioned before. His second point is that we use the word classics for those books that are treasured by those who have read them and love them, but they are treasured no less by those who have the luck to read them for the first time in the best best conditions to enjoy them. There should be a time in adult life devoted to revisiting the most important books of our youth and i, I like think that one yeah and then he says every reading of a classic is as much a voyage of discovery as the first reading and i think that's something that really does stand to the testament of classics that they i think you can reread any book that you enjoy but there's something about classics that gives you fresh insight fresh understanding there's more to know there's more to understand with each reading
1: almost that when it's sitting on your shelf it's sitting there be- waiting for you to come back to it because it hasn't finished what it wants to say.
0: That's literally point Sorry. six. That, no, that's great. A classic is a book that has never finished saying what it has to say.
1: You can tell I did actually read the notes beforehand. <laughs>
0: and and then i love this one as well the classics are the books that come down to us bearing upon them the traces of readings previous to ours and bringing in their wake the traces they themselves have left on the culture or cultures they have passed through and then in number 8 a classic does not necessarily teach us anything we did not know before i think that really gets to the like the primacy or the like the sort of charismatic nature of classics Uh, then he says the classics are books that we find all the more new fresh and unexpected upon reading the more we thought we knew them from hearing them talked about and I think that's something that we really feel that like often when we come to classic books I feel like I need to get past my own idea of what they are before I go into them that like that is often a barrier to me actually reading them because I'll have one idea of what they're like and then I'll open it and it will be completely different and I'm so thrown by the difference that I almost feel like I can't go on.
1: Yeah definitely I think we'll talk about that a bit later.
0: Yeah and then he has one which is, we use the word classic of a book that takes the form of an equivalent to the universe on a level with ancient talismans. And I think that's quite a, an enigmatic statement, but I, again, speaks to the sense of them have it, containing multitudes within them. Um, and then your classic author is the one you cannot feel indifferent to, who helps you to define yourself in relation to him, even in dispute with him. A classic is a book that comes before other classics, but anyone who has read the others first and then reads this one instantly recognises its place in the family tree. I love that sense of them being part of this tree of literature that, that has sprung up, that they're all interconnected. And then the last two are a classic is something that tends to relegate the concerns of the moment to the status of background noise. And finally, a classic is something that persists as a background noise, even when the most incompatible momentary concerns are in control of the situation. I, I think those are just wonderful kind of pointers to what classics truly are. And they go but beyond sort of, they were written in this place at this time, in this style.
1: Yeah, definitely. Or everybody has loved them, therefore they're still in print.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely for our own experience something that we kind of found is just that they demand a certain level of attention of care of generosity of reading
1: yeah and that might mean that they're quite difficult to read they might still be easy and straightforward to read but that in reading them without attention you miss a lot mm. like it can be either of those two yeah like i think austin falls very much into the second camp that you can read her as a light, fluffy author, but if you only get the light, fluffy romance, you're not really paying attention to the story.
0: Yeah, and for me, the what the kind of bugbear that I have is people who tell me that, and there are some exceptions to this, but they, they tell me that they've read Dickens, and I say, did you find him very funny? And they kind of give me a blank look of, was, was I supposed to? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, he's incredibly funny. And I, I, I think you have to be paying enough attention to the language and going in with the expectation of finding him funny.
1: Yeah, that was definitely a mistake I made Mm. because I just wasn't expecting to find it funny. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't come across as funny because the language was a bit different. And I was, you know, 18 and not used to it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I know, because you said to me that you'd read read Oliver Twist and A Christmas Carol. And I was like, A Christmas Carol? That begins with marley was dead to begin with <laughs> i mean that's that's such a like humor-filled opening and he talks about um why why doornails should be the deadest piece of ironmongery, and describing him as dead as a doornail but surely surely coffin nails would be the deadest piece of ironmongery, you know
1: yeah but i think with the christmas carol you have to be reading it slow enough to find the fu- the humor
0: mm-hmm. if
1: you're just reading it I guess I read quite fast and if you're reading too fast you're going to miss that
0: yeah yeah and I think also the other element that you have to like we kind of mentioned about that expectation of reading them fast and also them following a similar kind of momentum let's say to modern novels and I I, I hate saying modern novels because again within that there's like a huge range of whatever (laughs) we mean um but certainly I guess maybe in things in genres like young adult fantasy young adult generally fantasy and even some a lot of genres, uh, some generally. literary fiction yeah. yeah that it's quite punchy and fast and and keeps keeps going quite quickly and i think one of the things that i pointed out to you today was that we, we forget how many of those classic novels weren't even written as novels they were written as serials that came out in papers
1: yeah definitely
0: and so they always have this very different kind of pace and then often I know that that once once they did come out in their entirety I believe a lot of them then went back to be edited into as with the mind to them being a single book but I think it still shows in the way that they're paced
1: yeah like the extra chapters in north and south
0: <laughs> We're still waiting on the ending of North and South. Elizabeth Gaskell any day is going to write that ending, um, and I think one of the things that I've really learned in coming to approaching classics is to change my mentality. Because when I was younger, I used to say, "Oh, that doesn't interest me." And I, I when I was a teenager, I would have said that about Jane Austen. That I have no interest in that. You know, and then when I, when I got older, there was other, there was other things that uh, other authors that I was like, no, I've no interest in that. And then lo and behold, a couple of years later, I would be like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I'd read it and I'd like it. And obviously, I think there is a balance of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. But I think it's also really helpful to go in with the mentality of saying this book doesn't interest me yet. And having a sense that the more you read, even if it's not that particular book, if you read sort of around it or in a similar time, that you'll begin to get a sense of why that author or that novel was important that might inspire you, might, but might inspire you to find it interesting, that you'll come across something or maybe a quote or maybe a personal recommendation that will say, oh, you'll really like that because it does this and you like that. And I think, going into I think it's a good thing for all reading but especially the classics to say I have no interest in that yet and saying that that it means that it might come at a time later in your life where it has something to say to you or your your tastes have changed enough that you you're open to it and just to not close off that too early and say oh that's nothing to do with me I've no interest.
1: Yeah and I think there's a level of kind of following your nose with that that your line of reading might take you towards it mm-hmm. and then also to try and build up enough knowledge, the knowledge I just said I don't have, which I, of the kinds of books that you would like in mm-hmm. that area, um, which allows you to then go and realise when it is the right time to read them. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and that that reminds me of actually a book that both of us read this year. And if you ever want the speediest read in the entire world after all of these uh, quite intense reads, uh, I would very much recommend the book 84 Charing Cross Road. Even
1: you read it fast. Even
0: I I honestly could have read it in a sitting. (laughs) Um, And... Uh, I I believe we mentioned it before but if you don't know it is it's not fiction it's based on real letters between a writer Helen Hampf, in uh, New York and the letters that she sent to a particular bookshop in London asking for different books and then she writes a kind of memoir then later which technically has a different name it's called the Duchess of Bloomsbury but I've only ever seen them packaged in the same book these days so all you need to worry about is 84 Charing Cross Road but Uh, she kind of reflects on her reading and her reading experience and she's so much fun um it's it's a really fun book but i i i think this is just indicative of like how to be open to reading and I wouldn't necessarily recommend this approach, but I think it'll give some pointers. It's quite fun. She says, she was visiting England and she says, there's one suite of freshmen's room at Trinity college, which John Dunn, John Henry Newman and Arthur Quiller Couch all lived in, in various long gone eras. Whatever I know about writing English, those three men taught me. And before I die, I want to stand in their freshmen's room and call their names blessed. Q, which is Quiller Couch, was all by himself my college education. I went down to the public library one day when I was 17 looking for books on the art of writing and found five books of lectures which Q had delivered to his students of writing at Cambridge. Just what I need, I congratulated myself. I hurried home with the first volume and started reading and got to page three and hit a snag. Q was lecturing to the young men educated at Eton and Harrow. He therefore assumed that his students, including me, had read Paradise Lost as a matter of course and would understand his analysis of the Invocation to Light in Book Nine. So, I said, wait here and went down to the library and got Paradise Lost and took it home and started reading it and got to page three when I hit a snag. Milton assumed that I'd read the Christian version of Isaiah and the New Testament and had learned all about Lucifer and the war in heaven. And since I'd been reared in Judaism, I hadn't. So I said, wait here, and borrowed a Christian Bible and read about Lucifer and so forth, and then went back to Milton and read Paradise Lost and finally got back to Q, page 3. On page 4 or 5, I discovered that the point of the sentence at the top of the page was in Latin and the long quotation at the bottom of the page was in Greek. So I advertised in the Saturday Review for somebody to teach me Latin and Greek. And went back to Q, meanwhile, and discovered he assumed I not only knew all the plays of Shakespeare and Boswell's Johnson, but also the second book of Esdras, which is not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. It's in the Apocrypha, which is a set of books nobody had ever th- taught to tell me existed. So with what with one thing and another and an average of three wait years a week, it took me 11 years to get through Q's five books of lectures. <laughs> She's so good. <laughs> Now, I don't think maybe that should be your approach to reading classics, but I do think there is something in there about allowing the things that you don't know about to just to kind of note them and maybe look into them or let it expand your areas of interest.
1: Um, Yeah, I was going to pull out a C.S. Lewis quote, which is kind of similar to what we were talking about as well. And he is someone who read very widely. Um, He's a quote about if you want to be widely read, you should enjoy, um, you should be able to enjoy a book in the sixpence section of the secondhand bookshop um, rather than just the books in your study. I think we're talking about actually making sure you've read the books in your study. Um, (laughs) But this is one where he says, I don't feel qualified to contribute to a master list of writings. Um, And then goes on to say in response to somebody who's asked him for this list, I would rather see young men beginning from where they are and being led on from one thing to another e.g that Milton should lead them to either Virgil or Homer and therefore into a really serious study of Latin and Greek or to Dante and therefore to a whole course of medieval and Italian studies (laughs) that after all is how every educated person's development has actually come about (laughs) and I think that's kind of a bit more extreme than what we're talking about here No, but I I do think there is a real truth
0: to it because I think it's so funny now. I loved doing my degrees and especially loved doing my master's and I studied and I learned as much as I could and I was really studious and I still feel like it's, I think it's almost 10 years now, gosh, but looking back on it now, I, I think how much more I could bring to that now because I've been able to follow my nose and to read broadly and to get a better context and... To me, I just feel like I needed to just read more, more, more and more broadly and more kind of, I don't want to say indiscriminately, because like we're saying, we're trying to direct people towards reading some of the kind of really important works. But that reading Dickens helps you understand medieval literature and reading medieval literature helps you understand Dickens, you know?
1: I guess reading more than just what's been handed to you as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I feel like... Sometimes your syllabus, because it re- you have to read certain things just to be able to talk about them, like that's the whole point of why you're there. But it keeps you on such a, a specific track that actually you would be better off having a, a broader approach.
1: Yeah, make care. Education—the topic for another day. Yes,
0: yeah. we we will come on to the to to the topic of what makes a well-educated person another day. Once we've read Newman's *The Idea of a University*, like uh, once we
1: feel like we can actually stand up to being vaguely well-educated.
0: <laughs> um, yeah.
1: But yeah, I think we then want to kind of go in to talk about the Christian element to this because, like we said, it's not a vanity project. Mm-hmm. There is, I think, a lot of. Almost, I would say, nonsense online about reading in and of itself being a good thing. Yeah. And a lot of like fluffy, airy, very fairy quotes, which are all very well and good in their own way, mm-hmm. but I think we have to realize that reading itself, in and of itself, is morally neutral. Yeah. You can read good stuff. You can read stuff that's okay. It isn't leading you either way, and you can read bad stuff. Yeah. Um. And there's. There's just like a whole moral dimension to that that we wanted to talk about a bit. Yeah, I think for
0: people like us who love reading, it's very easy to fall into the kind of trap of assuming that because I read ergo I am a good person or a moral person or any of those things and you know as much as we might like to feel that way that's not actually true Um, and I I think a good comparison to that is people who are really into fitness and you know and I have friends who like reading and fitness. I, I think being fit is a very good thing it's good to have a healthy body it's good to take the the time to look after yourself and also be, in being fitter and healthier let's say maybe you are more able to help and serve those around you maybe but that doesn't mean that actually going to the gym in and of itself is is like a definitively moral good thing you could be doing it for vanity you could be going to the gym when really actually somebody needed you to help out with something else but i i guess my point is that just that these things can seem when you're in the middle of them they can seem very obviously as moral goods and that doesn't mean that you aren't using them as moral goods but it doesn't but at the same time we need to be able to say that yeah like you said we can read things that are neutral and even things that are bad i was saying to phoebe that i don't i my my instagram account obviously recommends lots of Book kind of accounts bookstagram as they call it people who read books and for a long time it was a lot of YA which is not a genre I spend a lot of time with young adult fiction um, and it seems to have descended quite rapidly into what they term dark romance which seems to be quite explicit um, romance stories and I to me that's a really obvious example of I don't think that that's a good thing to be reading. Um, I don't think it it uplifts you morally. Um, I I think there can be books that have explicit sections in them that are morally good, but I think as a genre, dark romance, the purpose of it is to be explicit, and therefore it just doesn't strike me as actually a moral thing for a Catholic or a Christian to spend their time reading.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think then there's a whole range of books which maybe deal with moral issues in a way that we as Catholics are not comfortable with and I think that's always a personal judgment for how we approach those Mm -hmm. um but in terms of ones that can actually draw us towards good Mm. I think there is still an element of you were saying how reading is one of the best ways to build compassion like there is an element of true Christian goodness that can be brought out of reading yeah, and particularly in uh, you said a great thing about literature earlier today of it being a gift of God in the same way nature is that it's translated through man mm-hmm. but is giving glory to him.
0: Yeah absolutely I, yeah I kind of compared it to I, I think you can compare it to, to creation itself but like you said in terms of being translated to man it's maybe more directly corresponds to like great works of architecture or uh, or things like that. So, you know, going to the Vatican Museums, going to the Sistine Chapel, going to Notre Dame, obviously it's it's uh, uh, being uh, renovated at the moment, but any of those great things, it's not... You haven't failed as a Christian if you don't manage to go to any of those places. You, you can go to them and bring all of your own bad intentions with them. You may be just going so that you can take the photo outside, but you can also go as a pilgrimage and go enter into that journey to receive the kind of wonder and grace and like you said i think it's really interesting that that reading does build up compassion i was reading some things about this and this is actually something that is in favor of fiction over non-fiction um, when i worked at this website we often had to promote kind of take the lists of of books that famous people would give out at the end of the year and 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 give links to if you want to buy any of them and so you know i think it was like obama and bill gates and and all of these kinds of people and they almost exclusively recommended nonfiction and a lot of kind of self-help books and then history and i you know i i I don't have i I don't read a lot of self-help but i certainly do read nonfiction in the form of history and memoir and, and travel writing but um I think it is interesting that fiction has this advantage over at least things like self-help in that it's almost like I read one article which was saying it's like a flight simulator for how to react in a situation morally or react socially or how to pick up on social cues and how to interact with people and, and gives you the experience of Maybe messing up or, you know, I think anyone who's read Jane Austen knows the excruciating uh, pain of going through some of the awkward social interactions in (laughs) in those stories. I've just reread Northanger Abbey and there's a anyone who's read it knows there's a scene in in which someone tricks her into failing to meet an appointment. And it's so excruciatingly embarrassing.
1: You couldn't stop complaining about it. Oh, it was
0: awful. These books actually do offer us the opportunity to enter into the human condition, to enter into the complexity of human emotion, and to enter into the history of the world, especially when we're looking at books that are written from before, that they are part of the history of the world.
1: Yeah, there's a great C.S. Lewis quote for that.
0: He has quite a few good (laughs) quotes for
1: this. Um, One I particularly like was that every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to make certain mistakes we all therefore need books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period and that means old books <laughs> that's from his essay on that's from his essay on reading old books
0: <laughs> i think it's in the preface to a book on like reading athanasius or yeah. something like that but you that. can
1: find it online it's just that essay
0: <laughs> yeah you can just google on, re- on on the reading of old books yeah. so there is an element which says that what we as... Catholics and Christians can bring to the to our reading life is an attempt to enter into these works that most clearly universally speak to the human condition.
1: Yeah and I think because we're talking about particularly reading old books there is also an element for us Christians that a lot of them are coming from a more Christian culture and that can allow them to challenge our Christian moral attitudes in a way which is different to modern books because they're not having to defend it it's an assumed principle that you agree with and then they're pulling like pushing the boundaries of it and challenging how you apply it.
0: Yeah, I think even stories from those eras which are about the rejection of Christianity are more intertwined with Christianity than our modern books are. At least western modern books to me strike me as as kind of distinctly post-Christian. And I think modern Christian writers are are still wrestling to a certain degree and actually I would say quite largely wrestling with how to write as a Christian for our sort of post-modern post-christian society
1: so if you know any great ones that are out there let us know yeah i think that's worth saying is that as much as
0: we're advocating for classics i think certainly i would consider a failing of my own <laughs> my own reading is a failure to me read modern fiction and even when i do read modern fiction a lot of it can be modern historical fiction or maybe it's like maybe it's fantasy and I'm not saying that that can't speak to the the modern world either but that like there is a certain sense of like the kind of escapism from the modern world even within the modern fiction that I do read.
1: Yeah because I read probably more modern fiction than you do but it's almost all not set in this modern world.
0: Yeah and I think that is interesting that I think both of us do struggle to find books that we find interesting. And I think again, to try and approach it with that, uh, you know, it doesn't interest me yet. And I still keep, I keep quite, I still work in publishing. And so I do keep quite a, a keen eye on what is happening in modern fiction. I kind of, it's one of those things where someone will say, have you read this book? And I'll say, no, but I know about it so you can talk to me about it. But I'll usually have read a lot of blurbs or heard a good bit about the kind of the books that are making waves. But I will admit that I, I, I don't tend to have read a lot of them. And I do think that is important. Um, there was a great article and I actually referenced him in our last episode. Niall Gooch, you're getting a lot of airtime on Risky Enchantment these days. But he had an article which was about the need for more Catholic authors. And obviously not everyone reading reading books is trying to become an author, but I still think it, it applies. And he pulls out a, a quote from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets of Little Gidding. He says that the quote is, we cannot revive old factions. We cannot restore old policies or follow an antique drum. Um, and he goes on to say, there is a danger in relying on the old classics rather than seeking to create new works that address the unique dilemmas of our modern world. And we cannot afford to neglect new media, including TV, music, film and internet content, as the mainstream culture becomes ever more corrupting. And he references, think of the recent release of the the film Cuties, which was, I don't know if anyone remembers, was a French film about um, young girls dancing in a very provocative way. But he says, we need to desperately gets serious Christians into positions of influence to counter the t- the deterioration rather than simply complaining about it. And then he makes the great point, which is that in 1999, Saint John Paul the Great, who was himself a playwright and a poet, issued his letter to artists calling on Catholics working in creative fields to rediscover the depth of the spiritual and the religious dimension, which has been typical of art in its noblest form in every age. This appeal has only become more important in the last two decades since it was made as the internet has transformed human interaction and the workings of media. All of us need to think about how we can support and promote Catholic artists so that we can once again capture the public imagination. And obviously as readers, it's not on us to do the creating, but I do think it is something that Phoebe and I maybe to a certain extent neglect in terms of looking for those those perspectives on the modern world that would be worth hearing because I always think it's striking that like, you know, we were our two reference points here, Austin and Dickens, but they're all writing about their own age. They're not writing about, and you know, there are some great works of fiction that are historical fiction. Dickens did actually write historical fiction as well, but that they were able to speak to their own age. And yeah. so we should be able to look for the people that speak to ours.
1: Whereas I think the people who are speaking nowadays in that context, like Eleanor Berg Nicholson, mm-hmm. are looking back at a different era, because it's so much harder. Like that, I think we find it so much harder to speak into this era.
0: Yeah, I think it is a very yeah. difficult balancing act to try and speak a Christian perspective into the modern era that isn't didactic that isn't overbearing
1: because the ones I've read have been very didactic
0: (laughs) (laughs) very obvious very like and then all the homeschool kids save the day (laughs) um you know I yeah it's definitely a, a challenge but one that I do think can be bolstered and Inspired by reading the classics, that to take our reading of the classics and to apply it to how we see the modern world.
1: Definitely. I think from there we're going to talk a little bit about, as we were saying, you've got the morally bad books um, and then the range from morally neutral to morally good. Mm-hmm. And in terms of talking about classics, we found it quite helpful to think in terms of mountains. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, because I think. We were talking about classics. I had stated the very controversial opinion, <laughs> which <laughs> don't come for me for, but I have I have given an example of bad fiction, but I, I, I had come across a podcast which had used the phrase, all reading is good reading. And I kind of see where they're coming from because I think reading is a discipline that gets easier the more you do it in terms of like actual familiarity with words. But I also contend that not all reading bolsters bolsters you up, or even it helps you enable to read better and more dense works of fiction. And I was talking about how, in my experience at least, sometimes when reading a classic, like we said, we do want you to enjoy it, but it does also mean altering your tastes or like, like allowing for a more subtle palette. And so the experience of reading a, a very in-depth a classic novel can be harder and can be less entertaining but that when you finish it you get this like triumph that is unparalleled to anything else that like it's not just that I've, I've done this great thing but that I've gotten so much out of it it all comes together I, I feel like I've experienced this amazing story and the closest comparison that I have is the difference between going for a walk in the park versus climbing a mountain as you might have guessed i'm not the most athletic person in the world and so the actual physical experience of climbing a mountain the the moment that you're doing it is not not a pleasant one for me (laughs) Um, i'm not loving the actual physical experience of doing it
1: but you might still be enjoying yourself yeah. in a way. The, yeah. the
0: views might be great, the company might be great. There's something about the challenge that's engaging. There's something about the fact that you're doing something you're proud of. Absolutely, that there's there there is benefits to be gotten out of actually doing it, but that you only really get the sense of of why you want to do it after you've finished it.
1: Yeah, and that act of climbing also strengthens you mm-hmm. um and builds you up. Well I think A walk in the park which is what we're kind of talking about with light reading kind of morally neutral there might be some good messages in there there might be some stuff that you just have to skip um and also just the things
0: that sort of let you sit in your rut a bit yeah you know like i think we all have our preferences my dad reads a huge amount of crime fiction um, I have friends who read a huge amount of fantasy i've you know I think you would say you read a lot of regency fiction, yeah <laughs> um, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with any one of those genres, and there may be good or like better or worse books within those genres but that if you can if you kind of allow yourself to do that lap of the park over and over again that it doesn't necessarily expand you and strengthen you enough to take on bigger things like some of the classics
1: yeah and in particular it i think relies also on your approach to those that if you go into if you then go into a classic expect expecting it to be like your easy read. It's like you've tried to climb a mountain expecting it to be a walk in the park. Yeah, You're not ready for it. You haven't prepared. <laughs> and Your mentality is completely wrong. You're gonna fail <laughs> and you're not gonna enjoy it. You're just gonna chuck it away. Um, or I think equally what we'll talk about a little bit later is that mountains, you also maybe need a guide mm. in the way that you don't for the walk in the park. So the approach is a little bit different. And then we think that within that range there's also a level of reading which helps you build up to the bigger mountains Mm -hmm. kind of like foothills you still get a good view you still get a bit of a a good sense of accomplishment but it's not as difficult (laughs) so I think we're kind of framing it within that context
0: yeah and I think for me the 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 foothills that we're kind of talking about in at least in my experience and I think there can be a, a a big range of these but maybe they're like we said like the the classic children's fiction which has maybe like a slightly older tone or like a a slightly different storytelling style maybe it's a shorter classic i once wrote a very very tongue-in-cheek article which you can still find on my website which was called how to how to how to get as well read as possible as quickly as possible uh for which
1: they have get well read quick
0: yes um which was A kind of tongue-in-cheek premise that you said on a dating website, maybe that you were well-read, and now you had (laughs) several hours before a date to to live up to that descriptor. And and what are the fastest classics that you can read in that time? It's it's very much a joke article, but at the same time, there is some truth in it, which is that you can you can start small, like like we said, a Christmas Carol is a great way to try and limber up to read other. Dickens or the, the other one that's coming to mind is I think I I said there's a there's a very short uh, Tolstoy uh, novel called The Death of Ivan Illich and I said if you read one Tolstoy everyone just assumes it's a doorstopper so you're good <laughs> um, but yeah or for me I think also I think I said maybe already like sort of classic adjacents like maybe they're not the classics but maybe they're a bridge between the two maybe they're they're slightly more literate or literary I remember I did an article on the Harlem Renaissance which um, is a period of writing from from Harlem and slightly wider to, to African-American authors of the, the 1920s into the 1930s. And I found that so fascinating. And maybe some of those should be considered considered classics. But there's one I read, which was a, a, a detect. It was the first African-American detective story called The Conjureman Dies. And it did stretch me a little bit. It was a little bit different. It was a little bit unusual for me. And I loved it, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. Did you then go on to read any others? Or is that kind of building up your... No idea. Well, I had to read
0: quite a few for the
1: article. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, and in that job, I sometimes had to read sections and not whole books, which was always devastating to me. I, I'm a I'm a completist. Like I said, I like to pay attention to every word. So the idea of reading only one story in a set of short stories is very upsetting to me. Tragic. <laughs> um, but yeah, that like to look for those ones that stretch you a little bit and help you to, to tackle the, the bigger stories and, 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 and those mountains. And, yeah. Yeah.
1: and then I think also like finding the right time and the right weather for that mountain, which is one of the things I found with, um, say, Dracula, that the first time I tried to read it, I didn't really know what I was getting in for, and I didn't really understand that the difference in the storytelling because it's not a complete narrative so I got past the first bit of the the straightforward diary narrative and got to this bunch of letters and I was like what is going on (laughs) Um, and the second time when we were listening to an as an audiobook which we'll talk about as well it took you having to say no no this is important this is a key part of the plot (laughs)
0: This is how the how this the book is gonna go from yeah. now on. Yeah,
1: um, you just have to bear with this and piece it together again. And knowing that, and then being able to work my way through it, but also expecting something slightly different to what I'd expected before.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely found that when I read Frankenstein, which. I mean, all I had ever known about Frankenstein was just the image of the sort of Boris Karloff Green Frankenstein. And the book is so not anything like that at all. Um, yeah, I, I I totally agree that it, it sometimes takes getting like a key into it or like a, a personal recommendation or, yeah, finding the right entry point into it.
1: Yeah, and I think for me that personal recommendation also has to tell me why I should be interested in this book and why I'll enjoy it. Yeah. Like, you telling me to read Jane Eyre wasn't enough. <laughs> Sorry.
0: Amazingly.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, it put it on my to-read list, but it didn't, like, kick me into reading it straight away. Whereas another friend of ours, NIEV, saying that, oh, but that's like North and South in its own way. Mm. And I was like oh, wait, that makes means it's a totally different type of book to the type of book I expected. I'm totally in, for, in the mood for that right now. Off I go. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, one of the t- tips that I kind of recommend, and I suppose our podcast could be an example of this, is finding avenues of listening to people or reading people discuss books and talk about books. Um, because, like I said, there is something about hearing someone talk about it or reading about it that... Is different to just being told this is on a list of great books and you should read it. Where I tend to love reading for for recommendations is there's a journal called Slightly Foxed. They also have a podcast. So if you don't if you don't want to buy the the journal, you can listen to the podcast for free, and they talk about books there. Um, but they produce a beautiful quarterly, which is just a set of articles every issue of people writing about books, and they're they're kind of key area is about kind of it says it introduces its readers to books that are no longer new and fashionable but have a lasting appeal good humored unpretentious and a bit eccentric it's like it's more like a well-read friend than a literary magazine and i certainly feel that there are there are all kinds of oddball books that get recommended there's one that i've actually just bought for a friend for christmas called cheddar gorge which is a series of essays about british (laughs) cheeses and it looks great and I, I got that from Slightly Foxed and I always think it's really funny how in a lot of like literary magazines they'll usually tell you where to buy the book and it, often these things can be just like my old job are written with the idea that you would sell books behind it whereas in almost every single one of the Slightly Foxed articles the it, the line at the bottom says this book is out of print but we can obtain secondhand copies <laughs> They're almost always out of print. But yeah, that like finding those articles that give you that kind of personal recommendation or that key into why you might find it interesting or a personal experience of reading it yeah really helps you along the way and I also hope like things like our discussions like if you have always wanted to read Dracula that like maybe listening to our podcast and there's loads of podcasts that talk, talk about books and also talk about books from specifically Catholic point of view or Christian point of view that give you that motivation and I think that maybe comes into something we're going to talk about a little bit which is that how classics I think not in every case but in a lot of cases are sort of unspoilable in the sense of that you can either listen to someone talk about them including the plot or you can watch an adaptation or I've gone to several plays that are versions of classic books that have not as far as I can understand detracted from me enjoying them and actually maybe provided the impetus for me to go and actually read them.
1: Yeah definitely like that's how I first read Pride and Prejudice as a 14 year old because the movie had come out I loved the movie I went and read the book yeah and that was the exact sequence of events mm-hmm. um, and I would never have picked it up otherwise I wouldn't have been able to get past the first page probably. Yeah. but there's something about knowing where the story is going knowing the type of story it is and what you're getting in for that can really help. The caveat I'll put on that, which also comes from me recently reading Jane Eyre, is that I also saw a dreadful adaptation of Jane Eyre as a teenager, and it did not make me want to read Jane Eyre. So if you see a bad adaptation of something Blame the adaptation, not the book, and try and find a better one. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. unfortunately, there's not like a cut and dry um, list of like, what are the good adaptations and what are the bad ones and which ones should you watch an adaptation of? Um, But I think maybe for me where it comes in is that if you don't think that you would find the motivation to read this without having seen an adaptation or you know been given a a version of the plot beforehand because I think that that's totally true that there's plenty of books that I just would never have gotten up the interest in if I hadn't gone and watched a film of them or you know like I said there was a couple of plays that I went to that like if that is your starting point that's a very good starting point and roll with it and then sometimes it's another thing like i remember i still haven't seen that recent um adaptation of david copperfield that came out but i saw the trailer for it and really liked it but i'd been meaning to read it dickens for ages and i was like no this is it i'm gonna i'm going to read this book before i watch the adaptation and because i knew it was such a long book i was like there's no way they've gotten all of the plot into this and i've since since read david copperfield um and i have since described it as a book that is 110 110 plot <laughs> So I know for certain they can't have gotten everything into the film. Although I have heard very favorable things about the film. But at the same time, I found when I was reading it that I needed to go to Wikipedia where they had a list of the characters. And I tried not to get any spoilers for myself, but occasionally I had to be like, wait, who is this person again? And like I'd go back and check and like, oh, they were they lived in the house by the sea and blah blah blah. So okay, I know who that person is. That like taking those little prompts and those helps where you can find them. Um, And while you may spoil something of the, the plot for yourself, that doesn't automatically mean the book is ruined for you, because I do think that's where we come in with saying about classics or books that you can reread that are still telling you things. And like, obviously there are some books, that have like a big twist or a big reveal that it would be wonderful to get them firsthand. But the flip side is often with classics, they're so embedded into the culture that it's unavoidable to hear about their their twists and their their reveals, even, even if you're trying not to spoil yourself, that like they're just part of the fabric of talking about literature.
1: Yeah, and also that they are the kind of books that even if you watch a blow by blow perfect adaptation of them, mm-hmm. like, the BBC Pride and Prejudice.
0: Or I um, would say the I, ITV Brideshead Revisited. Mm-hmm.
1: Even if you read that, you have still missed something by not reading the book. Yeah. That there is something in the book and the way the story is told and the way the author tells it and the writing itself mm-hmm. that is not only worth reading but is often also the part which builds it up in a Christian sense more than anything else
0: yeah yeah and often the thing and like I know adaptations can have like narrations but they're not reading the book out on film um that like often you you find that the the narrating commentary is often where you get a lot of the sort of moral insight into the book that it's not just what's happening in the plot it's how it's being told, the tone in which, and the, the little authorial asides that you get when you read the book. I mean, I'm currently listening to the audiobook, and I will say I listened to the audiobook of David Copperfield as well. We'll come, So I think we'll move to audiobooks after this. But I'm listening to the audiobook of Nicholas Nickleby at the moment by Dickens, and his chapter headings are hysterical. And I have no idea how Dickens does this because he essentially sums up what happens in every chapter in quite a long sentence at the start and somehow that doesn't ruin the enjoyment of reading the chapter there was one that i sent to a friend recently where the it was the the name of this chapter is miss snag after doting on kate nickleby for three whole days makes up her mind to hate her forevermore The causes which led Miss Nag to form this resolution. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that is amazing. And you you could never get that from uh, an adaptation. And so, yeah, like you said, that no matter how many versions of it you've seen or consumed in other medium, there is always something worth going to within the book itself. But I suppose, like I said, that brings us to audiobooks which I maybe I should take the lead on. I feel like I've been talking so much, but I'm a big advocate for audiobooks. I believe I'm slowly getting you a little bit more into audiobooks.
1: Yeah, not not even that slowly. More (laughs) that I have, I think, less listening time than you. Mm
0: -hmm. Mainly because you do a lot more reading. (laughs)
1: Um, But I
0: love audiobooks, and I find, especially with classics, that like if I can get a really good audiobook of a classic, it's a really accessible way to get into them. And that I think it is very foolish to not count audiobooks as reading, as some, as quite a lot of people do. They seem to think that audiobooks are a, a lesser form of... Of reading the book. I have a, an article here which was from the Telegraph but it comes from research published in the Journal of Neuroscience which says uh, neuroscientists have discovered that the same cognitive and emotional parts of the brain are stimulated whether a person hears words or reads them on a page. A YouGov study carried out in 2016 found that just 10% of Britons believe that listening to an audiobook was the same as having read the physical version with the majority believing it was a lesser form of culture but experts at the university of california berkeley disagree lead author dr fatma deniz a researcher in neuroscience said At a time when more people are absorbing information via audiobooks, podcasts, and even audio texts, our study shows that whether they're listening to or reading the same materials, they are processing semantic information similarly. We knew that a few brain regions were activated similarly when you hear a word and read the same word, but I was not expecting such strong similarities in the meaning representation across a large network of brain regions in both these sensory modalities which is just to say that and again I do think that that there are benefits from sitting quietly and reading a page and maybe getting away from your iPhone or I think another thing that I struggle with is going for walks and and experiencing nature without listening to something and that includes audiobooks but that it, we shouldn't denigrate audiobooks as a way of experiencing, especially the classics, which I think is something that you wanted to talk about.
1: Yeah, I think because I end up reading to my mum quite a bit when I'm home, and it's really brought home to me that a lot of these books were made to be read aloud. Like, if you read Jane Austen aloud to someone, Or even sometimes it would be that she's halfway through a book and I'm reading a chapter to her and I'm like, oh, I'm really enjoying this. I have no idea what the rest of the book is about, but I'm really enjoying this. And that in that same context, in Jane Austen's time, one of the entertainments of the evening was somebody would sit down and read to everybody else. And you might be sitting there doing your craft, like what we do with our, like listening to an audiobook and doing our crafts. You might be doing a few things, Mm -hmm. but that reading was a skill and something that you would do for the entertainment of others. Yeah, uh, I think that's just a really interesting thing to remember that a lot of these books were written with the expectation that they might be read silently but they would also be read aloud.
0: And I think for me the advantage of audiobooks and reading aloud is that you are more present to the language on the page. You can't skim it. And I know there's some people out there who listen to audiobooks on on double speed, which I do not recommend. (laughs) It's not about cramming information into your head. I have, there are occasions where I have slightly sped up readers who were particularly slow, but... I, you know, I do think that, like I said, it's not just about, it's not just a race to get through as much content. Like we said, it's not about saying, I've read the 100 books on the 100 uh, best books list, which... I think those lists are a great place to find where maybe you're missing a great classic, or maybe there's an area of your expertise that you you had missed out on, or or that there's a classics that you haven't heard of, or whatever it is. But they're just a starting point. They're not like this like race to the finish line. Get as much information, be able to say that you've read all of these books, but that like like we said, if you have to take it at the speed of reading them aloud. You catch those subtleties of language. You catch those clever plays on words. You catch the
1: tones and you catch the jokes. Like I think that's definitely a big part of it, that you catch the funny bits.
0: Yeah. And like I said, I'm such an advocate for especially with classic authors who sometimes get, like, a a, a dumb deal with... Uh, for me, another one was um, Brideshead Revisited with Evelyn Wall, where a friend of mine had read it on my recommendation and loved it. And then we watched the first episode of the series together, and I was shrieking laughing at this one, one point in it, and she was like, oh, I never really... I didn't cop that you were supposed to find this funny. And I just couldn't believe that you wouldn't notice it to find it funny, that it was so funny to me. Um, And obviously that those things are also just down to personal taste or like, or or experience of of that kind of humour, but that if you take it at that speed, I think you're much more likely to catch all of those interesting things that they're doing, that the author is doing with the language.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing that it allows you to do is to share it with some, like share that experience with someone else. Like when we were listening to *The Woman in White*, mm. um, one of the characters is very annoying, mm. but very funny in how he's annoying. Yeah, and because you were in hysterics, I was amused. If I'd been on my own, I was just be like, "Oh, I hate him." <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Absolutely, that it becomes like a communal experience, and that especially because classics are kind of universal in this way, that they can speak to, to a group of people all at once and that they are this great experience to go through with someone.
1: Yeah, and I think the other side of that, what you were saying about the language, is for someone like me who reads very fast, particularly if you struggled with a book, maybe that's time to try the audio version. Yeah. Because even yeah, hearing somebody else's intonations of the sentence can help you understand it in a way that you reading it off the page doesn't.
0: Massively, yeah, I really think that.
1: Or the accents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that was, it was North and South, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the accents sometimes when you realize that they would actually have sounded different mm. or because Elizabeth Gaskell in North and South has written out how the accent sounds a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't know that accent, that's really hard to read.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So hearing
1: that done was great.
0: Yeah. And then the other kind of you say about reading quickly and that being maybe your your foible when you're reading. I think for me it's it, it is amazing how the the modern world is just not conducive. Like I find that I feel like oh I I can't sit down and read for an hour. If I put my phone in the other room, it turns
1: out that I can do that. <laughs> Whereas because I read quickly, yeah. I can sit right down and read for two hours straight.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just recognising that sometimes it takes extra steps to keep you focused or keep you on track with what you're doing.
1: Yeah, and particularly, like we were saying, with com- like the walk in the park compared to the mountain, that maybe these are the extra steps you need to take for the books that are a bit harder that you wouldn't always have to take. Just because you can read one of your kind of usual fiction books, like straight through, doesn't necessarily mean that you'll find, like I found, that maybe you won't find it as easy and maybe you'll need a little bit of help.
0: Yeah, and I think that's good because just to to underscore again, I think we did say it, but that the, the books that we're equating to a walk in the park, we are not trying to say to denigrate those and say you should never read those. I personally take a very boring walk in the park every, every work day that I can. And I think it's very good for my constitution. <laughs> um, but that yeah that if i never did any other kind of walking or never went into nature or never like went into the world more than just my little we we live near a very flat square park that you can see from one end of the other too (laughs) and so when i have this in mind just picture that like imagine just a flat square they're they're doing as much as they can they've recently added a lot more plants to it but it's a very new park and it's very flat and square and
1: (laughs) yeah imagine a football pitch that's got a couple of trees in it yeah and that's that's what we
0: have next to us so but like i said i think you know reading those books are the ones that keep you motivated to keep reading and keep it as a habit that you keep up in your everyday life but that doing it too much or never thinking to deviate from that path is where it kind of leaves you just in a particular area of reading which might be fine for some people but if you do want to tackle these these books that it just takes that little extra kind of push up the mountain yeah (laughs) and i think maybe just to close out then we were going to touch on maybe one or two books that we had read that felt like a lot of work at the time maybe or maybe were a bit of a stretch for us that um we were really pleased that we had read I'll say David Copperfield was definitely one. I really loved reading it at the time, but I didn't necessarily think it was making that much of an impression on me until I finished. And then the other one that I found that really took me off guard was that, like you said, it's almost, I feel like it's almost impossible to nag people into reading books, but a friend of mine did make me promise, and amazingly I did follow up on the promise, to listen to the audiobook of The Count of Monte Cristo. Having... Almost no knowledge of it. I knew there was a bit about a prison and some of the details therein, and that is literally the only thing I knew about the Count of Monte Cristo. And i could not believe how much i enjoyed reading that book and i remember looking at it being like i think it is it 52 hours or something like that it's something ridiculously long on the audiobook and i loved it and then i've spent the last couple of years nagging my brother to read it and he finally read it this summer and he was like why didn't i listen to you sooner (laughs) but yeah that like I think it can be really intimidating to see a book that size, whether in terms of hours on an audiobook or in terms of pages, but that, yeah, to have the sense that those books have lasted because there is something interesting happening in them and it's not just going to be like reading the, a dry text or like a textbook for 52 hours worth of text.
1: Yeah, I think the book that I wanted to mention, um, which... Is maybe more in the line of foothills rather than a mountain and um, is a slightly more recent um, 1960s book called In This House of Breed that mm. I was given for my birthday and it really took me by surprise because it's about a group of nuns Benedictine nuns in closed order and yet very dynamic and enjoyable and very real about the people and I think that well, I'm going to try and make you read it and we might do a podcast on it. But for me, even going into something like that, that's a little bit unusual. And I was a little bit worried that it would take a slant that was, you know, something that I wouldn't agree with. Um, so being able to face that kind of challenge, I think is a nice little foothill if you're looking for something that. Isn't a massive commitment and still has enough of that like modern plot drive to push you forward while challenging you to like slow down and contemplate er like sections of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. And I think that maybe will lead us into our usual final question, which is what are you enjoying at the moment, Phoebe?
1: Well, I haven't been on this podcast for six months. (laughs)
0: So so what have you been enjoying for the last six months, Phoebe?
1: (laughs) Have you mentioned Wolf Walker? No, I haven't. Good. Okay. So we watched this beautiful animation from Cartoon Saloon that is called Wolf Walker. And it's this really autumnal, set in Kilkenny, just really beautiful, lovely storytelling, kind of Irish, set in the 16th century Yeah, Yeah, it's just so I like. I don't want to talk about it too much to give it away, but it's about these people who turn into wolves, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, Uh,
0: and we have a Risking Enchantment podcast about cartoon saloon it was before that particular film came out but if you want to listen to that me and robin had a discussion about cartoon saloon so. that was
1: why i had to ask because i knew you'd done well with robin recently and i couldn't remember what you'd recommended at the end of that
0: <laughs> yeah and i think for me i think i've mentioned already slightly Fox, i'm really enjoying the journals that i subscribe to so uh slightly foxed is one of them the lamp is another obviously levin which i talk about all the time and i'm involved with and also on a less kind of literary note Uh, Country Living magazine which just has lovely articles about different industries in in rural England and gardening and uh, like plants and nature and all of those things and crafts and recipes and all of the kind of good life things so I am very much enjoying all of my magazine and journal subscriptions. And I think that's pretty much it. Like we said, do get in touch with us. This is definitely a topic that we'd love to hear from listeners about to get their perspective on, on how they found reading and what they find interesting, whether they have particular recommendations. Um, and like we said, especially if you kind of have modern books, I think there's lots to be said for modern books, but I do think that for myself, I'm definitely missing ones that are modern and about the modern age that i could do with kind of expanding a little bit but yeah it's it's one that we definitely want to hear from people and to just thank you for bearing with us when we were missing an episode last month and i hope you're having a happy and a holy advent our next episode will be More kind of Christmas centered. So, uh, look. And we will
1: get it out before
0: Christmas. We will get it out before Christmas. And thank you very much, Phoebe, for joining me back on this podcast. Good to be back. It's been far too long. And we will look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment, music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at Rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.